welcome back to season two of Outside of Session. I'm your host, licensed clinical social worker and therapist BFF, Julie Hilton. This season, I'm interviewing some incredible guests who also happen to be experts in their fields. Mental health, motherhood, spirituality, and so much more, I can't wait for their stories to be told. These are all the conversations I'm having outside of session. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Outside of Session. I have missed you. I've missed doing this, and I cannot wait to share with you guys what I've been up to the past couple of months. Season two is officially kicking off, and it's going to be so good. And thank God this season, I am not going to be carrying the conversations by myself anymore. As you heard in the intro, all the upcoming episodes that I have for you will be interviews with guests. They're mostly fellow therapists who have varying specialties in our field, but you'll also get to hear a lot of amazing personal stories too, which I think you're really going to enjoy and be able to relate to. Just to give you a little bit of a sneak peek of some of the topics that I have lined up this season, we're going to be talking about grief, OCD, perinatal loss, EMDR, emotional regulation, imposter syndrome. Um, like each episode is going to have its own individual topic. And I seriously think that they're all going to be topics that you're going to want to learn about. And I actually learned a lot doing these interviews. Um, but don't worry, these conversations aren't going to be like too clinical or overly therapisty. You'll see pretty quickly that it's just regular people wanting to bring awareness to the different ways that we're trying to help people heal and live their best life. Another difference that you'll notice this season is that the episodes are definitely longer than last season because the conversations were just too good to get it all in in 20 or 30 minutes. So I do hope you'll listen though to the entire episode to get all of those nuggets of wisdom throughout. So today we're starting with my personal favorite topic and that's only because it's my jam and it's my specialty today we're going to be talking about healing our inner child and if you listen to the last couple of episodes that I did last season you know that I already started to talk about this a little bit but today we really are going to dive into it um and I had the absolute pleasure of having my really good friend Chris Dorsey on the show to talk about how this has also become just a passion of both of ours in therapy And in fact, we ended up geeking out on this topic so much that I needed to break it up into two episodes. So today you're going to get part one of healing your inner child. And then next week you'll get the rest of the conversation. So a little bit more about Chris. He is a licensed clinical social worker, but also has his MBA. And he spent almost 20 years in various leadership roles within the accounting and finance divisions of real estate and technology firms before becoming a licensed clinical social worker. And he shares a little bit about how he made that life transition um, in the beginning of the episode and how that really impacted his desire to want to do this specific kind of work. He also has experience in palliative care and medical social work as well, um, as he's been helping his father navigate his own journey with dementia. Chris utilizes a broad and unique set of skills to wholeheartedly guide clients through the most challenging of circumstances. 
Chris values a humanistic approach to social work and therapy where the dignity and self-worth of the individual is protected at all times. And Chris applies integrative approaches to grief and loss treatment, focusing on navigating the client through all the difficult life transitions, while also opening up their system to safely explore their feelings and emotions to the loss. In addition to grief work, um, Chris also has extensive training in internal family systems, which is the majority of what we talk about in today's episode, but also dignity therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy, if anybody has ever heard of those different modalities of therapy. So with all of that being said, here we go. Season two of Outside of Session officially starts now. Hey, Chris, good morning. Good morning, Julie. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for being here today. You have the honor (laughs) of being the very first guest that I'm interviewing. Um, I mean, I've already done a couple of other episodes, but I know I'm going to release this episode first because I want our episode to kick off season two of Outside of Session. Oh, wow. No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) I guess you have my honor. This is the first time I've ever done anything like this. So... Well, I'm kicking off your series and you're helping me kick off my radio recording life, you know, journey. I love it. But, you know, I was just um, saying before we hit record, the reason why I wanted to start this season off with this episode is because I'm going to have a lot of topics this season and a lot of them are not my area of expertise. So I ended up learning a lot from the other therapists this season, Mm. but I wanted to start with this one because this is my jam. Um, so today we're going to be talking about, I titled it the magic of healing your inner child. And I know that sounds a little bit dramatic, um, but I can be sometime. (laughs) So I feel like that's me a little bit. I have a little drama part too. So, but I just, I love it because I feel like this, this journey that we go with people on is just so healing and it does, it feels like such like life changing, right? Well, yeah, I like the word you use, journey, because it really does, um, IFS really does take you on a journey. If you it can really, really, does. really hone in with a client <clears throat> and create that safety and that calmness, uh, there is no telling where they'll take you. And they, it can be quite rewarding back to that inner child and um, without really even that intention of what you're trying to do, right? I yeah. think it's that natural piece that it plays, plays so yeah. well as a therapist and as a, as a client too. And I wanted you specifically to be on here because you and I have had some really good conversations um, lately about how it's transformed our practice as we've learned more and done more trainings and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I knew you'd be the perfect person this. Um, but before we actually jump into how we work with our clients and what IFS is and how, how we work on healing our inner child, I wanted to see if you would share a little bit about just your story because it's so um, unique and I love it so much. And even how our paths crossed a few years ago and how, um, I don't know, just how we've gotten to know each other over the past few years. Yeah. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I'd love to. Um, so like most folks who graduate college back in the nineties, I had no idea what, what I was doing. It seemed like, well, maybe most people around me at school did. I did not. And that kind of theme kind of played out for me for, I'm 49 now. So the next 20 something years, I never really was able to be in a career that felt all that fulfilling. It was, I found my way into accounting and finance and just for a really long time, just kind of never really had any attachment to it, but it was a job and, um, and a successful job too, right? Like you were, I, mean, I, I was a controller for 
real estate companies and a technology company, but I just never had that inner feeling of like, wow, I can't wait to get to work and do those numbers. In fact, what's funny is I was very busy with all with the people, with all my coworkers, right? Like that human side. And I think that human side has always been with me. Like yeah. from the day I was born, I mean, my mom tells me credit uh, report cards, not credit cards, um, all sort of said, Chris needs to spend more time worried about um, Chris, as opposed to um, spending so much time worried about everybody around me. And I think that um, kind of played out in my all my jobs too. I sort of knew every, I always kind of have this feeling of knowing a lot about people, what's going on. And yeah. if the girl next to me has questions about another coworker, I probably knew, some, you know, I knew a little bit about everybody. And so I can see um, that. Yeah. <laughs> it's paid off. Like I think that active listening that we need as therapists was always, was always there. I just didn't know how to hone it in and make money off of it so much later. And so, um, yeah. So I think um, I had the, kind of misfortune. My job was going to be eliminated. And um, that was, but that ended up being fortunate because at the same time I was at a Christmas party and a lady asked me if I would be interested in doing a Myers-Briggs test with her. She was getting certified. And around the same time, I just heard about my company making changes. That that test really said a lot. It really told me, um, it came out really that, forget the letters, but the ENFJ maybe, um, um, came, or I forget what they were, but it, the more important piece was it came back that I would do really well in human resources if I stayed in corporate or a teacher, a social worker, or a counselor. And it, mm. it was just not really stood out to me because I think at that moment, knowing that I had an opening in my career that they said I could stay for a year or two, but then it would be eliminated. And then this this test telling me, and so I kind of put the two and two together and was like, all right, let me go kind of explore what this could look like. So while still working, I did research on like how it would look to become a social worker, a counselor, a teacher. I was not going to do human resources. I was like, I'm done with corporate America. Well, long story short, I ended up really settling in on social work. It really was the most broad for me. I know I needed something broad that had openings to kind of pivot into different arenas therapist, medical, social work, you know, case management, anything. And um, so then made the decision to go back to school at 44, 43, found a program in Atlanta and at Kennesaw State. And then it really just the journey, like we said earlier, like IFS takes you on a journey. I was on a journey and didn't know where I was going to go. Walked across the campus one day and it hit me. I might want to try hospice, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh. That's but even dying. to make that decision to uh, like uproot your entire career, like that yeah. is a complete 180, right? To go from yeah. accountant, financing, to go to social work, like. <laughs> I, I said to myself one day, crazy I think I'm the only 44-year-old in America that is off to social work school, <laughs> male, even like in a female-dominated sort of industry. I was like, this is definitely, I felt like out of my element. But also, I, I've got to tell you, there was something in me that was just so excited. And I had never felt that. And I think it was all the preparation that I did leading up to it. I look back on that. And I never really had that skill set. And I think I gained it because it wasn't impulsive. I spent a year really researching and it felt confident. Like, it, And that's a parts of IFS that we'll talk about in here. Like, There was energies that were happening then that I think also play a role in why I attach so well to IFS, why it really hit me when I met it. And um, so I think that piece, yeah, I, I walked in the room and it was like, yeah, this is a 180. I have no idea about 
oppression and what social work really looks at early on. And then um, I just, my heart was open and my mind was open. And, you know, I'd, I had some critics that were like, what are you doing in my head? But I kept them pretty quiet for those two years as much as possible. And they got quieter and quieter as I, you know, got more and more involved in the, in the journey. Yeah. yeah and so yeah. Um, that was, that was pretty cool. Just kind of settling in on something that I had never done anything like that. So I, um, I, I get I goosebumps it. talking about it. I know. I love it so much. And that's when our paths crossed. Yeah. Absolutely. So you were interning at hospice and I had gone back to the same hospice to work PRN while I was trying to build my private practice because mm-hmm. those of you who don't know, that takes a lot of work and a lot of time. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, I remember hearing all that from you and was like, oh, wow, how cool is that? Just kind of yeah. taking in everything you shared with me. I, I still remember that sitting in the office talking and reflecting on like what I could do because it was my second year. Mm -hmm. Um, that internship and I was kind of looking to see like what am I going to do when I graduate well and I remember you you were talking about staying either in hospice or in medical social work and I remember from the very beginning being like "Uh uh-uh you need to be in private practice like um one of the things that one of the reasons why I chose social work as well is because it is so broad Mm -hmm. and so if you get burned out in one area you don't have to completely leave the field you can go from working in you know domestic violence shelters to medical social work to private practice to like there's some school social work like there's so many different avenues that you can go um and people find like what fits their personality so well Mm -hmm. but I just remember thinking for the as soon as I met you, I was like, Mm-mm, you need to be doing private practice. You have such good insight and such good, like, like you make people feel just so comfortable talking to you that I was like, I want you to hurry up and do this so you can be my therapist one day. Like, I need I you to that. do this. <laughs> I remember you telling me that. In fact, I, I remember when I told you I was going into private practice, I couldn't wait to tell you that because you were really the, I had never really considered it. I thought, yeah, I'm going to try hospice. I really felt compelled to aging, like that was the area, the age, that demographic, um, just kind of my dad has had dementia for 16 years, mm-hmm. he's 85 years old, and I felt like, okay, I'm going to use that as my you know, motivator to kind of help this demographic, and I'm going to do it in a way that looks like medical and mental and kind of hospice, palliative care, medical, social work, all of those yeah. types of areas really intrigued me, and so... For you to kind of throw that little curveball at me, kind of stuck in my brain. And then sure enough, I got into hospice right after graduating and it was just a different world than I had anticipated around not so much the care, but really the logistics of maintaining that type of job given my lifestyle. Just I had a partner and family. My dad's got, I mean, it was just the time consuming aspect of it became too much. And then, um, so I kind of made the decision to come out of that, but loved every minute of it. I mean, that's really the piece that has helped me in private practice is that ability to sit with pain and suffering. I mean, you, you, not everybody has that gift. And I learned early on that I do, you know, mm-hmm. you helped me with that at the internship, but it, it's always been sort of a natural place for me to be able to, to lean in and, and, and help those that are really struggling with it. And um, so I took it to Grady Hospital and worked as a medical social worker. And that's right. I forgot you were at Grady for a while. Yeah. yeah. I was there during COVID. I actually was thinking about Ooh. this call yesterday. I know it was, it was pretty um, incredible and also scary. And, but yesterday I was thinking about our call and I was like, Oh, and I got very emotional because I remember the day I was walking in and I had my little lunchbox and my backpack. And I mean, I've never 
had an important in my mind at least felt that what I've done was important. Like you never, and then that day there's people clapping and like all this stuff, and you're like, oh, you know, it just overwhelmed my system in this way of like, okay, it validated everything I had sacrificed for the last. four years to go back to school at 40 something years old. And there I am like walking in a hospital during COVID and boom, it was real, you know, and I'm helping people navigate nursing home admissions and all sorts of stuff with, you know, the geriatric, that was the population that was getting hit the most. And that was my, I was on a COVID only floor and all of that sort of stuff. So that journey um, was pretty incredible. And then at the same time made the decision to kind of try out private practice on the side part-time. That was like 2019 through Kobe came in 2020 and then 2022 um, in June of 2022, I went full-time into private practice. And so that leap was just, it was time. I felt like, you know, I had pretty much um, experienced everything I could at Grady and was like, all right. And along the way, built my skills up in private practice to kind of feel like, let's give this thing a try full time. And so for the last almost year and a half, I've been solely in private practice at key counseling. I remember being so excited for you when you finally told me you were like, I'm doing it. I'm going full time. I was like, yes, so excited. It was just, I know. And I love that too. Cause that was another thing that reminded me of sort of my decision to go into social work was just like, I really took my time to go and make that decision. That was not impulsive either. And that's mm-hmm. something I've really learned about myself and something IFS has really taught me is this slow down, you know, like I know you want that or you want to get to that place, but let's, let's stop for a minute and see how this could work and how it could really work. And in the empowerment you can get from sort of taking your time with your parts to make that decision, that action piece doesn't have to happen so fast. Let's do some, you know, contemplation and some preparation. I really, those eight stages of change, so to speak, I sit a lot in, contemplation and preparation action usually just seems to kind of happen pretty not fast but it's not a it doesn't it's not it's more of what you do before that action plan I feel like IFS is a lot like that too yeah and I think that um I think IFS, one of the things that the more and more you work with your parts, the more and more you start to trust yourself and so even as you're going through this contemplation and preparation phases Like it doesn't take as long when you feel like you have built that trust up. And I say that all the time on this podcast, that one of the things that happens when we have, whether it's um, a big trauma or just emotional trauma, relational trauma, that kind of thing. One of the things that's always sacrificed is being able to trust yourself. Like I see that over and over with my clients that we feel like we, we don't trust our decisions, that we don't trust that we see things correctly um, because we've, you know, had people in our lives that tell us basically that we don't make good decisions and we shouldn't trust ourselves. And I I feel like doing this work really helps you to be able to say like, no, I make pretty good decisions for myself. And so I'm going to take the time, like you said, to think this through, Mm -hmm. but I know I'm going to make good decisions for myself. Yeah. It's that safety. You sort of quiet down Mm -hmm. the external environment that Mm -hmm. can cause that trauma or have that voice that tells you you're not making good decisions. And uh, once you can quiet down and create that safety for yourself and lead that, yeah, the trust can, can really take off. But I don't know, I tell everyone comes up like, let's look at your environment, you know, person and environment. And who's all, what all is out there that's causing all this noise that's helping yeah. you, you know, not feel safe and not feel secure. And then looking yeah. at that and then, you know, you can almost feel them coming closer and closer to self, so to speak. And um, yeah, but I think that trust is huge when you can create safety. 
Yeah, for definitely sure. what IFS does is, and therapists too. Like we're not just the intervention, but us as therapists are, you know, that's primary as well in the room, how to yeah. create that safe space for that client. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump into IFS. So okay. IFS stands for internal family systems, and it's a type of therapy that Chris and I both use primarily in your practice at this point, right? Like, is it that kind I would of say that in grief, grief and loss? Those yeah. two are my primary. I mean, but I implement the IFS sort of in even within grief work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so last season I did an episode that I very briefly went over IFS and it was the part two of trauma drama, very last episode of last season, but I really want to dive into it a little bit more today and get your expertise and your experience with it as well. So, um, I feel like we both have just fallen in love with this because of the way that we've seen it transform ourselves, Yes, but also so many of our clients. Um, why do you feel like this has been something that you immediately clicked with and found that you're so passionate about? Well, I think on a micro level, when I was reading about it for the first time, I was introduced to it. It, it was the first time I had ever read something that made sense to me as a mm-hmm. clinician looking at interventions and trying to sort of align myself with one. You know, we get hit with a lot of options out there. People are saying CBT, ACT, yada, 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 so many, you know, so many. Yeah. what are all these things? And so quietly one day, I just happened to read a book on it. I bought it and just sat down and it just really hit me. It was like this, my parts, and I could identify all of the different elements of what they describe, which we'll probably talk about from managers and protectors. And it just all of a sudden I was like, my goodness, I just was able to really see myself from that perspective. And it felt inside internally it felt really good. It felt like something that, you know, I had never felt before in that little one hour to two hours quickly feeling that. And so I, I felt the power of it and I felt the understanding and it just made sense to me. Like, and so when something makes sense to me, that confidence in it was just sort of like, let's keep looking. And so it took me and it really, it, I never questioned it. It was just like, and I had quite, I have a really strong skeptic part, which when we start talking about parts, but that skeptic really was quiet. It was like, yep, mm -hmm, this, this sounds like something keep reading. You know, I could feel myself calmer, you know, reading it and just so curious about what is this? And so that's the day the journey started really. I think for me, you're spot on. Like there was something about it that felt like, um, not overcomplicated. Like there was a part of me that was like, yeah, like, this is just organizing and putting in paper on paper, something that I I feel like I already know about myself in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, When we talk about the different parts of our personality, I immediately was like, yeah. And and we already use some of that language in Mm -hmm. our daily life and we don't realize it. You know, when we say like, part of me really wants this, but part of me really wants that. Like we're already using parts language. I feel like this just gave a little bit of like structure and organization to say, this is, this is how our inner like network forms and develops and how you can engage with it in a way that feels like you can like learn yourself so, so much better. Learn, control yourself and just sort of Mm -hmm. in a way that maybe you've never really thought about. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading in that book, it said rather than sort of looking at yourself as like, I am anxious or I am you know, um, I am unorganized. You could just say, I have a part of me that at times can become anxious. Yep. When I read something like that, it was like, you're right. I'm not, I'm not this head to toe. I'm not 
fully anxious. This whole system of me is not an anxious system. There's just this area within my system that has this kind of maybe susceptibility to some anxiety. And when I look at that and I can control that, wow, that's rather than the whole body thinking and the mind thinking that you're anxious all day long and in every system, um, it's just one area. And that just really, I mean, I remember reading that and being like, yeah, you're right. Okay. And like softening up and Yeah. It's almost like it deflates it because at first it feels like I, my entire being is anxious. And when you look at it this way, it's just like a little, a little piece of me is anxious. I, a a part of me is experiencing anxiety, but I am not, I'm not an anxious being. It's just a part of me. And it sounds softer, just like, I mean, that sounds like a lot. (laughs) Like, you know, your whole, wow. Okay. Let's talk about it. When it's like, oh, I just have a part of me actually. And when I think about school and all the homework, I become anxious. Oh, okay. So then how can we keep that contained within that piece so that you're not really anxious when you're all these other places. And so just that helps give you confidence. Like, oh yeah, I can maybe help. I can maybe work on this anxiety. I know exactly where it's coming from. It's just yeah, that absolutely. So let's talk about some of the the language that we're already kind of like throwing out with IFS because it's so right. natural to us. Um, when you have a client come in and it's a new client and you can tell immediately like, oh, we could do some really good parts work here. Yeah. How do you uh, explain the process to someone to, to um, let them understand like how you want to approach their therapy? Yeah, I think that's a great question because I think everybody has their own approaches and I think we could easily get, I could have easily gotten kind of bogged down in like how to perfect that. And I think you just kind of come up with your own little system of how you want this intervention that you align so well with to come out. And I'm really kind of have a strong teacher part. So psychoeducation, explaining, I'm unfortunate to have a clientele that is, um, they have pretty good insight. They're pretty motivated and they have pretty stable environments in order to sort of explore. And so when they come in, they're, they're usually in a state of like calm, you know, for the most part. So I know that education and that kind of teaching piece that can, you can deliver kind of lands well. So I'll sort of go, I'll listen, kind of hear their story, what's going on. And I'll drop sort of like questions like, Oh, so what I hear is you have a part that is feeling overwhelmed by um, the changes within your job and they'll say yes and then I'll kind of map out all of the things I hear in a session and I'll usually try to do it in the first session at least kind of introduce the topic yeah. of like my approach my framework and kind of give them an, uh, some idea of kind of what to expect so that I know a lot of folks come in on that first session you know they kind of want you to deliver. They want you to bring like, Hey, I want my money's worth. You know, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to chat. I get that a lot. I don't want to just sit and chat. So in that teacher part of me that really likes to educate has really helped kind of go in and then explain how that part is something that we could look at through internal family systems and then really building a re- you know, an understanding how you've reached this place of feeling overwhelmed and what's behind that through that education of, and how you're protecting against it and those things. And like maybe eventually leading back to some inner child that is likely at play due to the change in environment at work or where, whatever the presenting problem is. So I sort of map that out maybe in that first session, or at least by the second of sort of how parts work will play 
in looking at their here and the now, the presenting problem, and how that likely will tie back to something in the past, and then bringing the two together to sort of help heal and building that relationship with that part from the past and how that can help in the present. So sort of kind of creating like a framework for them when they leave. And I think that lands really well with most. They um, they seem to think we've got a plan, right? There's yeah, something here. Yeah. yeah, I think at the beginning, I try to... Um talk and just normalize how we all have different parts of our personality. And mm-hmm. one of the questions that I always get is people have like this concerned look on their face. Like, are you telling me I have multiple personalities? <laughs> do you hear that a lot? <laughs> like, do you mean I'll be talking to all these voices? Well, I have, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, so to speak. And I'm always like, yes, you do. But that's because we all do. Um, and I'm not talking about dissociative identity disorder, which is previously multiple personality disorder. Um, we're talking about how all of us have like a complicated interworking where different parts of our personality come out at different times when we need them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so just to give some examples, like obviously I have a very professional part mm-hmm. and that part comes out when I'm at work and that part of me is very different than what my friends see, right? Because I have a very silly part around my friends. It's a light, which for laid back, carefree. Um, but then I also have parts that can be anxious. I have parts that can be uh, very perfectionist. And how do you explain to people how to be able to tell, like, I always say who's in the driver's seat, like one part will be more in the driver's seat. I, just, I say something like, who's in charge here? Like, who's conducting business? Okay, um, yeah, I like that. Something, yeah, like, they use like, kind of some examples of, like, the conductor or the driver of the school bus, like, who's driving the bus, that kind of thing. So I think, yeah, I like what you're saying as far as um, identifying those types, those parts within you. Is that sort of how you, and you're saying you introduce it like that? So, yeah. And um, I kind of do the same thing too. Like I've got this really strong teacher part that's going to come forward in this room as a, you know, but I'm also a therapist, but I also have, you know, I am a caregiver to my father. I, you know, help with that. And, you know, I have a part there and it's all, I really kind of that systems approach. So if you can Mm -hmm. kind of like take the systems, like um, you're a friend and your social network, that's a system. And then within that, you've got parts likely that are in that system that are very different than that system that when you're home with your spouse and, yeah. you know, doing in intimacy, those, those parts will come out differently. Right. And, um, yeah. and kind of setting the stage for them to really understand systems so that they can then see within each system, kind of that, um, not the genome map, but the, what's the, uh, the eco map that we learn. Mm-hmm. I kind of use that a lot and I'll kind of design that and then we'll kind of, and I'll say, you know, help me see what parts are within each of these systems of yours. Yeah, I like that. And they'll kind of go on a little journey with that. And then, you know, usually in that first um, session, something strong is presenting, right? There's a really mm-hmm. strong part and we'll, and I'll clarify, you know, is this the part that is maybe leading you here today? You know, this feeling of being overwhelmed, mm-hmm. um, tell me more about that. And then that likely leads Yeah. I love what you're saying. Tell me more about that. Because a lot of times I think people naturally would describe it as just a mood that they're in. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm say when people say that, I'm like, okay, so you already can identify it. Let's look at it if it's more than just a mood, but a part. And so what I start to look for is what do you notice when this, when this mood kind of comes over you? So say it's an overwhelmed part that, that feels very um, overwhelmed or maybe desperate for help. And it's like, that's the part that finally got you to reach out for therapy. And so that's the one that's just like, I need help so bad. So I don't just say like you've already identified a little bit about the mood, but let's look at it like it's its own person almost. Mm -hmm. How does it hold its posture? What is its tone? Is it really, um, is it afraid? Is it snippy? Is it sassy? Is it angry? Does it sound condescending? Like it, you almost start to notice that it has its own tone of voice. Yeah. Um, What you Oh yeah. Like the finding more information about that mm-hmm. part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're going on that journey. You'll notice how your body feels different. So maybe this part feels very much cerebral. So you feel it in your head more. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's more of a physical sen- sensation where you feel just this part feels very tense. And every time I'm, um, every time this part is like in the driver's seat or in control, mm-hmm. my whole body just tenses up. Yeah, um, there could be parts of us that feel very, try to make, tries to make us feel very small. So we, um, you guys can't see what I'm doing. <laughs> obviously. But like, go inward. Yeah. You go inward where your shoulders are down, your head's down a little bit. Like there are parts of this that just try to make us feel invisible or really small. Mm-hmm. And again, like a lot of times we might have an awareness of a, a mood that we're in and we can yeah. name maybe that emotion originally like anxiety or whatever it is. But when we start to do parts work, one of the things that I love is to really discover like how much more do you already know about this part that you just haven't put together. And that helps to solidify like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like when this part is in the driver's seat, so much about me changes, not just my mood. I look different physically. I might even have like a different tone of voice. Um, you know, I hear people say sometimes I have a part that comes out that is so mean and lashes out to people and uses language that I typically don't use Um, and it just kind of like comes out of nowhere. But when I feel threatened, I can just like snap on people and just go off on them. And that just doesn't feel like me. And I'm like, yeah, that's a part of you. Hey everyone. I just wanted to pause for a quick moment to say thank you so much for all the love and support that you're showing outside of session. If you haven't already do me a huge favor and hit the subscribe button, give me a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends. Help me take this show to another level. Now back to today's episode. There's that term they blend into that part. So what does like, that mean? Tell so blending is essentially what you kind of sort of described of like, he, you know, that person could have easily just been walking down the street and kind of listening to something in their radio and really enjoying the day and maybe even being so calm that there's nothing, you're not even in a part and um, someone could come and do something, maybe uh, get in his way, um, kind of impede his walk and it uh-huh. triggers something that he may have um, felt threatened and then blend into what he just described, this mean part. Something yeah. can just cause me to blend in and he, who knows, maybe some behavioral response comes too, right? Like pushes him, hits him, does something, right? right. And he has now discovered that he has blended into that, you know, maybe three, four, five times in um, the last month and it now has him concerned. And so we, right. you know, kind of, 
could say the next term would be that that part is feeling a bit burdened, right? It's it's now causing uh, a problem with with like his own day to day. Maybe even now because of its the five times it has increased, he's getting concerned. So now he's really feeling it, and it's it's causing him that calmness that he was experiencing down the street no longer really there. The next time he goes out to do the same walk, he's noticing like what's still thinking about what's going on with him and then kind of maybe thinking, okay, there's something there. I probably need to look at that. And yeah. that's a lot of what walks in, not necessarily the same exact story, but really something quite like that where they've reached a place where the part that he may have even known that that anger part was there, just hadn't seen it re- kind of reach this, this level. And likely there's other things and other factors contributing that are going on. And, so a lot of folks are coming in sort of knowing that part, but seeing the burden piece of it, like that it's just, they're, they're, it's now causing problems. And they, and you know, like the biggest one usually is around alcohol or some sort of substance that can help ease that pain that maybe they used to be able to, to manage yeah. the part, maybe the, a loss, right? Someone has passed or mm-hmm. they've lost a relationship. And due to that, their drinking takes a whole different turn. And then they find themselves kind of burdened by that. And then, you know, working to kind of understand what happened that got to this place, you know, and does that sort of help? Yeah. Yeah. So, so what's next? So you have a client come in, they're aware of some things that they are concerned about. You help them see that it's a part of them. Um, Where do you go from there? So we've identified the part, we've gotten to know it. The next piece is really learning more about it. I know you just did a little bit of that kind of explaining, learning, where does it present, finding it in the system. Um, yeah. In fact, IFS has sort of this, the six F, Fs, like F is in Frank, that they kind of ask, you know, kind of set the tone on how to, how to really get to that part that is likely burdened, right? Like the one that's really bringing them in for therapy. So you you find it, you then focus on it, you talk to it, you know, you really start to understand kind of what it looks like. They'll say, maybe it's in my chest. A lot of that, a lot of the anxiety is presenting in the chest. Good example. I'm nervous to even be here, right? They'll say like, I'm so nervous, but I know I need to be here. And I'll say, well, what, you know, and they'll say it's in my chest. I feel like my shoulders are, you know, we just kind of spend some time really talking and about that and understanding the somatic, the body piece of it and kind of settling in and then going on just a more questions around like, how do you feel towards that part right now? And that's, that's the, the key question in IFS is really, how are we feeling towards that part? Yeah. And so I think that sometimes clients can get a little bit stuck there because mm-hmm. that's a new, um, that's a new feeling. Mm-hmm. That's a new way of interacting with yourself. Yeah is to look at this as its its own part and you ask yourself, how do you feel towards that part? Mm-hmm. And I think that that can feel a little bit uncomfortable the first time that you're oh, getting yeah. used to this type of therapy. Um, because you're kind of, sometimes I even have to have people visualize if, if, if it's sitting next to you on the couch yeah. or if it's sitting across the table from you, like really trying to work to separate yourself from this part yeah. so that you can see it as, and an extension of you. But again, like you were saying earlier, I am not anxious. A part of me is anxious and I want to converse with that part that is anxious. Right. So, yeah, so that we can, saying, oh, go ahead. 
Sorry. No, I was just going to say that can be uncomfortable. Yeah. But that's another part, right? Absolutely. That's a protector that might. So that's another term. So what you just described is really that self, like kind of Julie um, in self, kind of looking at the part. Uh-huh. And that's, that I think is really key here is kind of extending what you're saying is creating this place where self Julie can see the part and it's yeah. separate. Like, like you're saying, you, you want that part to be a, a good distance mm-hmm. at, from while we're working. Cause a lot of times the problem is the parts or maybe the, 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 the burden is so close. It's, it's, yeah. And we want to kind of find that space to move that part back that might be so heavy or causing so much that feeling of overwhelm. And, and that's our job is sort of to kind of with questioning and with creating the space and really giving them this feeling of like, this is a safe place to explore beyond just naming it. I think that's, that's yeah, kind of a absolutely. lot. And that takes time. I know we're on a short, you know, time constraint here. Like that could take a couple sessions, right? It's it not could, Yeah. I'm so glad you I, said that. The audience could know one thing. This is a very slow um, process. It can be. Some clients can kind of move fast because they, they want to, and you can kind of let them. But for the ones that are really coming in with, with some real, like, not like, like just heavy things going on, trauma that is feeling really yeah. close and really acute. I think that's the term. That's a good term. Um, that I know right away, we got to slow down, right? We got to, we got to watch what we're doing and really honor that the part is here, that they're letting me meet it, that, mm-hmm. um, and just, and that they're meeting it, my client for the first time in a way that they've yeah. never met. And that can really overwhelm a system. And I just want to, I think that's the piece that really stands out for me is just really making sure that they feel safe constantly asking you know how are you feeling right now can you yeah. do anything that that part wants to say to me right if they're yeah. really kind of in the part you know and they could say I mean I had a girl the other day she's like she really cannot stand you right now she is so mad at you and I'll say well, tell her thank you like we I, we want to know she's you know it was a wall part that it, we've known the wall part and I was just moving closer to vulnerability for the client and the wall wanted to let me know that yeah. um, we weren't going to have that until we had some more talks. So yeah, I think that's really important. For client, or the audience here so they can understand. Yeah. Yeah. We always tell our parts that we're, we're never going to push past their comfortable, their comfortability until they give us permission to, because so much of this work is um, it's called internal family because you really start to think of all your parts as your family inside. And there's, Absolutely different ones that protect us in different ways at different times from different threats. Right. And so, so much of family work is respect and trust. Yes. And so we're, when we're working with our parts, we want to create that safe space. And one of the ways to do that is to say, you don't have to share or reveal anything that you're not ready for. And I will always respect that. Um, One thing I wanted to go back, what you were saying a minute ago is about self. Mm -hmm. So I always say self with a capital S Like it is our, it's our, it's at the core of who we actually are when we don't have any kind of part blending in or jumping in the driver's seat ourselves. And one of the things that I think that when I started reading and training at IFS, one of the things that I loved about it so much is the, the concept that our true self, like our, this capital S self is undamaged. Mm -hmm. And at our core, all of us are still intact 
And I think that that, like the first time I read that, like it almost brought tears to my eyes because of all the shit that we go through in life mm-hmm. and all, all of the painful experiences to think that at our core, none of us are broken. No, that there's like, that I place don't... that is, is sacred, so to speak. Untouched. It's sacred. Yeah. And that's what our parts have done for us all these years is to carry our pain for us so that self can continue to be preserved. Yes. Oof. I just got goosebumps. Right. Yeah. And so when we're doing all of this work, we're bringing self and trying to get self back in the driver's seat because that is, um, I know some people call it like our wise self, or I always just say capital S self, like who you are at your core. Um, that's the one that is always going to have compassion for all of our parts and curiosity about our parts. I think there's like eight C's too, um, of like all the different characteristics. Clarity, and when we know that we're in self Mm -hmm. sitting with one of our parts, it can be alarming for them because they're not used to fully like us being that protected version of ourselves. They're used to protecting that part of us. And so really like creating that safe space and letting them know if you share stuff with me, I'm going to be okay with whatever you share. I'm not going to be triggered. I'm not going to be overwhelmed. Um, when you're ready to share what you have been holding for me, whether it's our memories, our pain, um, we'll be able to work through it together. I think that that's such like a, a sacred moment, like you said. Oh, it is. I mean, I think really that may have been the primary piece around why I aligned so much with it when I read about it. Cause when you have self-disclosure sort of your own trauma, which I've had, and I've had a lot happen to me, which is another, I think inspiration as to why I do this work. Cause I overcame so much of that um, reading about the role of protectors. And that's a term I don't know if we've defined but that protector, that part is the one that's really keeping us safe from the, experiences that we've had that what's is another term the exile like the yeah talk about the terms a little bit yeah so the trauma language i think but the best way to look at it is something's happened to us maybe in childhood you felt that difference one day at school where i had a client her daughter her son excuse me shared that he loved pink well the whole several people in the school let kids in the class let him know Boys don't like pink, right? And so that difference was felt. So immediately the boy came home and, and started to tell his mom, I no longer want pink. So that protector started to build that day saying, hey, in order for me to feel safe at school, I need to throw pink away. We need to get rid of it. We need to abandon my love of pink. So he just, yeah. that self of being in the pink, nothing was, everything was sacred with his pink, right? The, the, the love of pink, his relationship, his attachment. And then that day, something happened. And imagine a life, you know, we go through that. We're, he's just five, maybe six. He's going to be 45, you know, want to have a lot of other things happen to him where he's going to feel that same kind of ex- exile, icky feeling, that yeah. difference. And so I think the key is when we have trauma happen, something usually will try to kick in to try to protect us from experiencing that again. But it gets harder and harder as you have more and more kind of happen to you. But those protectors are what it's at work to try to keep so we can get back to self at some point, that yeah. sacred place that when we do, um, it's those parts. They're called managers and firefighters that are, fall under the category protectors. And mm-hmm. managers help you each day get out of bed, brush your teeth, get to work, 
their parts that are kind of healthy. And then, you know, they step in at all various different times. And then when things get a little more threatened and your environment feels a little more unsafe, a firefighter can step in to kind of shut it down. Maybe because the protectors that are the managers, you know, just aren't able to do their job because the mm-hmm. environment's getting threatened in a new way. And something, you know, and sometimes those firefighters can be alcohol. Sometimes they can be a little healthier, you know, working out, something like that. But um, both of those parts can get burdened at some point too, and then lead to um, the idea, you know, just leading maybe to the need to come to therapy, right? You realize that yeah. what was working, you know, at 22 years old to protect you and to help you manage is no longer working at 35 because things have happened. Yeah. So we, we meet those parts pretty early on, those protectors as in the room as therapists. And that's usually what's, when they're sitting down, they're usually talking mostly about a protector that is no longer working. That's yeah. kind of feeling like, you know, I used to do this, but it's not working now. Um, yeah. Okay, let's talk. And so it's usually something else has happened. So I think for the audience to really understand that exile is we all have them. We all have those feelings around ickiness. And some people are lucky. They move on through life to where their protectors are able to keep that feeling at bay, right? They never really feel it. But then sometimes just given circumstances and how life is gets complicated, Those it gets harder and harder to manage those uh, exile feelings, right? Mm-hmm. And then they can mm-hmm. come to the surface. And that's when that gentleman that kind of under you know the anger towards the other person there was likely something happened maybe to him at a young age at a child age uh that kept you know maybe it was um who knows what it was you know like abandonment but he you know being alone or maybe threatened at some point by an older adult and then mm-hmm. he worked to protect him himself against that and then because of his life maybe getting more complicated and he was walking on the street that day that same protector that was able to kind of manage people who feel threatening in one way when he was younger, he can't quite do that. And, it, and that's when you realize that it's like, let's talk. But he, 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 you know, and then leading back to that childhood moment is sort of what IFS will take us. I'll, we'll talk about what the presenting feelings are and then eventually be able to get back maybe to that, you know, threatening moment when he was six from some neighbor or something. Right. And then heal that and begin to tell. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, you're spot on, like we call them protectors, but so much of when the way that they have learned to protect us is not serving us well anymore. Like a lot of times people are confused cause they're like, no, this is wreaking havoc in my life in some ways. Um, so it, it can take a lot of work in therapy to really understand from this part. How do you think you're protecting me by, having this behavior because a lot of times we see it as, I don't know why I self-sabotage. I hear that a lot, right? Like I sabotage my relationships and we have to get to know that part to understand it thinks it's protecting us by um, leaving the relationship before you get hurt, mm-hmm. doing something to kind of like cause a breakup because you're scared that they're going to leave you. Right. So maybe you had, Maybe your first love at 15 years old broke your heart, right? And so a protector part learned you're going to be abandoned. Like that's the pain point, right? And so it learns to protect you by 
not letting you be vulnerable with people. Mm -hmm. Or if you start to get too vulnerable, you do something to cause the breakup. And it looks like self-sabotage, but that part is kind of like, nope, my job was to make sure you didn't get broken up with again. And you didn't because you left before you got broken up with. Sort of a hypervigilance around like, well, let me be ahead of the game in case it shifts a little bit and I'll break up before. Yeah. Is that sort of what you're talking about? It is. And I think that um, what I've noticed is that when we talk about the managers that are helping Mm -hmm. us try to stay on top of our life, Mm -hmm. they can be very helpful, but they can also cause a lot of anxiety because they are very proactive in trying to keep us from any kind of pain. So um, they can be our parts that are perfectionist. They can be the parts of us that um, are really critical of ourselves. Like everybody kind of has that, that part of you that's always beating you up about something, whether it's, you know, I I work with a lot of women that they have this part that beats them up about their diet and their weight. And they say, if, and that protector part is saying, if I don't keep you on top of this, then I'm afraid um, something like you'll gain weight and then, um, that'll be a pain point because maybe sometime in the past somebody caused you pain because, because of your weight. Right. And so they're very proactive so that I've noticed that those parts cause a lot of anxiety, a lot of um, self doubt and guilt in a lot of ways Yeah. Um, because they're very, very critical, but they're proactive and they're trying to get you to stay on top of things because they're afraid if they don't, you'll experience some kind of consequence, right? Proactive management. So Proactive speak, management. Yeah. Like and then the, yeah. Fire the firefighters are more reactive yeah. when the pain is already kind of there. So it's, it's, those are the parts that might say, um, well, you've already messed the relationship up. You might as well go, go out and have an affair or you had, you've already blown your diet. And so that's when we see a lot of binge eating. Yeah. Um, or they try to numb you out. And so even like part, like depressive parts can be firefighters in some ways because they just like kind of shut you down so that you're not able to engage in relationships in life anymore. Do you notice that too? Oh yeah. Like anger is a big, like when the anger kind of comes out really quick and fast, uh, as opposed to just sort of like, and you, you know, that just, you know, you just, yeah. Anger is a big one that people find out, figure out it's like how do I get control of this because it's they're stressed out and then they've got to shut down whatever's feeling like they're dysregulating or they're losing control and that firefighter around anger is is a real common one I think coming into the rooms because they're there's already build things are building things stressors are feeling the the you're feeling the impact of all of them and then anger tends to be this big firefighter that just lashes out and anytime you're lashing or you're doing anything con- kind of negative consequences, yeah, those are usually the firefighters. Yeah. That sh- I think that like they're shutting things down. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to describe it. You know, I heard, um, so an IFS, that's the language, right? Like there's oh. the protector parts and you have the managers, the firefighters, and they're both protecting you from the pain of the exiles. Right. Yeah. I read a, and a different IFS book. Um, gosh, I can't remember what it was, but the way she described it, I really liked too, because sometimes those words can feel a little bit woo woo. Yeah. <laughs> I just had a client say that. He goes, are we doing hocus pocus today? Or something? And I started laughing. I kind of like, there's a part of me, there's a part of me that cringes when I say firefighter. Cause people are yes. like, what in the world are you talking about? But the way that this therapist in this book described it was, she said, we've got our young parts 
are our exiles because a lot of the pain that we're talking about happened in childhood when we were first getting our sense of self. And then we were given those message of you're wrong for liking pink or something like that, or when your heart gets broken for the first time. So the exile, she calls our young parts, our child parts. And then she called the managers, our controlling adult, our controlling parent, or maybe. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, I can see that because adults are like always like staying on top of us, trying to make sure that we're, um, controlling our lives right Mm -hmm. and our firefighters are our pissed off teenage parts oh i like that and so those are the ones that that aren't really thinking about consequences they're only thinking about um doing something rash in the moment whatever needs to be done they're willing to do so whether it's drink whether it's lash out whether you know whether it's shut down they're just kind of like our pissed off teenage parts that are willing to shut us down i love that and oh I was like, God. yeah, that's that's kind of language that I can get on board with. Yeah. That's a big conversation just in general around IFS therapists is just, do you use these terms? How do you present it? How do you talk about it? You know, some people don't say self. They just use the energies uh-huh. or whatever they, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and they don't, they just, a lot of them say protectors as opposed to managers and firefighters. So yeah, it's interesting. I, um, yeah, I, don't, I don't think I, I really, I, I kind of say it all and just see how it lands with the client. If it doesn't land well, then I send, send it adjust. Now I have a new option. It's been a while since I said fighter fighters, because I think that that there's something in me that cringes at that a little bit. Yeah. You have a part. That, <laughs> I have a part that doesn't like that. I have a part yeah. that's just like, people aren't going to buy into this if you use that kind of language. Um, but I have some other clients that have gotten just really, um, because it's worked so well for them that they want to read all about it. And mm-hmm. so they'll come back and they'll say, what is a firefighter? We've never talked about that before. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's the word that I don't like to use. <laughs> you um, to walk in and want to know about firefighter, right? Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, I think um, the language is, is unique. And so have you applied that part in the controlling parent and the pissed off? Like, do you use that now? Um, yeah, I think I use that a little bit more. Um, and like, I even use the example a lot when we're talking about our manager parts, about how helpful they are in our daily lives, right? Like my professional part is a manager part and that part wants me to do really, really well at my job. And so it keeps me awake and it keeps me alert and it helps me hone in all of my like clinical skills and stuff like that. Um, but even our manager parts can wreak havoc in our life if they get pushed too far into their role and we blend with them too much. And I always use this example. Um, I have a part on Saturday mornings that loves to wake up and clean because I love a clean house. I, I, Everything about my life functions better if I don't have like a lot of clutter around me. Um, Like my environment very much impacts me. And so on Saturday morning, if I wake up and I'm cleaning and I'm knocking it out and I'm getting it all done for the day and um, you get the laundry done and you light the candle at the end and everything is going great, right? Like that is a part that helps me manage my life really well. But (laughs) she's going to come out tomorrow. Um, but if that part gets too pushed too far into her role, I can become just psycho. Yeah. And before I know it, I'm yelling at the dogs because they're creating more mess while I'm trying to clean. And I'm yelling at the kids and I'm frustrated with my husband because it's at that point not helping me manage. It has become perfectionist and mean. Yeah. 
because that part is so focused on like getting tasks done that she's like, I just, I want everything to be done and perfect and nobody is helping me. And I'm lashing out again um, at people who are preventing me from getting there. And at that point, she's not really helping me manage my life. She's actually causing problems in my life because that's damaging to relationships, right? Like nobody wants a mom that's waking up on Saturday morning and like (laughs) yelling and frustrated and like, everybody's like, dang, can we sleep? You know what I mean? And I don't want to be that person. Like I had that mom growing up, so I don't want to be that person, but that's, that's how I've learned to be. And so that's where you can work with your parts in the moment to say like, hang on a second, let self have the floor for just a second and decide what's more important. Is it the the task that my manager part is kind of like conditioned to move me towards. How important is that if it's causing other areas of my life to suffer? And that's when, if I can access self in that moment, self will say, chill Jules. It's okay. Mm. If everything is not perfect, family and relationships are more more important than a perfectly spotless house. Like this is not Southern living. So just take a deep breath. And then that's like, if I can work with that part, I can reel her back in a little bit and she can say, okay, we'll get done as much as we can, but it's, it's not worth it to act this way. I love that. That's that awareness that sort of is what IFS does. You've Mm -hmm. through that work of being able to see um, that this part is no longer in the role. This manager is not in the same role that it was when it was first created. That's, yeah. that's essentially what this is all about is how can we get that part back into the role that it was initially or originally um, put in and how do we, you know, cause that's in the, at the age that you're at or in the environment that you're in. Cause that's, as you shift, like maybe you had that same cleaning part when you were 12 and 15 and it really served you well. And now you're at the stage in life where you've got other things, a family, a full-time career, all of that other stuff. And those things are impacting how that role can perform in that morning. Right. It sounds like. And so how do you get back to sort of creating that awareness that the part's not in the role that it used to be and redirecting it and informing it and getting it back to that, that awareness. And that's clients go like, you know, whereas they would come in and say, I, you know, for four months I have had, I've been in this cleaning thing and it's driving me crazy, you know, and through this education of learning about the part and then asking that that self to go home and say, is there a part you know, in you that could help with this cleaning part to kind of see and manage the environment in a new way to kind of have awareness of this before you just yeah. blend right into cleaning? Like, you know. Yeah. And then the, the question that we always ask in therapy, once you've identified all of that, mm-hmm. you ask this part, what are you afraid will happen yeah. if if you don't get everything clean and perfect, what are you afraid will happen? And that's where you start to learn from your parts about the burdens, right? Yes. Those fears that mm-hmm. they have around if they don't do that role, what will mm-hmm. happen? Because they get really anxious at the moment and they say, it has to be done this way. I have to help you with this. And so that's where you start to learn what is it protecting you from? Yeah. Um, and, and, what I love about that question is when you get to that point of having the trust with that part to be able to ask it, what are you afraid of? You, you instantly learn things. And so often it's something that you had no idea was underneath what's going on in the moment. And I think that that's where we really start to connect the dots and understand our inner workings a lot better. And we realize that 
these parts that we have, the reason why they hold those positions so tight is because they've been tasked with like protecting us from something. Mm -hmm. So like I might ask that protector part, why do I feel like the house has to be perfect? What are you afraid of will happen if it's not perfect? And they'll end up telling you something like, well, I'm afraid you're going to be judged or I'm going to, I'm afraid that you're not, not being a good enough mom. And it's just like, it seems counterintuitive because it's like, well, I'm actually not being a really good mom by yelling, but it's afraid that if I don't give my kids a clean environment, that that's not good enough. Right. And so you start to learn what their underlying fear is. And it points you in the direction of, okay, well, where did you get that message along the way in life somewhere? And that's how you end up making a connection back to an exile or a younger part that, that was injured at some point. I know. And the way you describe that, it's like, Oh, and in 15 minutes we get there. I mean, that can take several sessions and within that trust. But just to say when that happens, it is, it's like, it's why we do what we do. And I think that's that kind of a light bulb moment for sure. It is. It's, it's a feeling that I makes me get up every day and do this job because that, that is not in a textbook, so to speak. Like, you know, there's not a, a you know, a homework assignment I can do to go to get to that. That just takes so much just skill and kind of all of the things about person centered. I don't know. It's just a, ma- it's like magic. You know, and, and then you give them hope. That's what we call IFF. It's like this hope that now, like, it doesn't have to look cleaning doesn't have to look like that. But they understand and trust that. Wow, we kind of see why we got to this place. It's deeper than just you know, um, all these other day to day things. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Outside of Session. Remember, while I am a licensed therapist, this podcast is not a substitute for individual therapy. The contents of this episode are for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911 for immediate assistance or dial 988 for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline.